0: Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in January.
1: Welcome to Access Utah, I'm Tom Williams. Andrew Russell is primarily known as the man who photographed the famous East and West shaking hands image of the Golden Spike Ceremony, May 10, 1869. He also took nearly 1,000 other images that document almost every aspect of the construction of the Union Pacific Railroad. He contributed immensely not only to the documentation of the railroad, but also the nation's visualization of the American West and earlier, the Civil War. Uh, Daniel Davis is a photograph curator and associate librarian at Utah State University Special Collections and Archives. He's author of the book Across the Continent, the Union Pacific Photographs of Andrew J. Russell. It's out from University of Utah Press and uh, Daniel Davis joins me in studio. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Tom. I should say, welcome back. Yeah, we, we it's talked been a about while. the Bear Lake Monster. I think we were recalling. Uh, yes, I think last that, was, time that was a while ago, though. Yeah,
2: yeah. I'm much uh, older and wiser now. So.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: and that was interesting discussion. It's always yeah. always fun to talk about that. Uh, we were talking about uh, the American West and the railroad. Very interesting uh, uh, discussion, uh, I'm sure today. So, uh, how did you get interested in Andrew Russell?
2: Well. Um, I was sort of looking for a Western uh, photograph photographer to write about. And so um, at that point I was at the University of Wyoming and I had heard about A.J. Russell and and a lot of the photographs he took in southern Wyoming of the railroad towns that were being built in 1868 and 1869. And, of course, the famous champagne photo of uh, East and West shaking hands uh, at Promontory Point. And, um, and I started looking more into it and realized no one had written a book about Russell. And so I sort of thought, well, why not me? <laughs> and in 2010, I took a, sabbat- a summer sabbatical and um actually traveled from all the way from um, Omaha to Promontory Point and re-photographed a lot of his images. And at that point, I thought I was going to do an exhibit. And um, I um that sort of morphed into this book, you know, that I was working with John Alley who was then at USU press and he encouraged me he said you know you should write a book about this and so you know it took 10 years but <laughs> for about 8 years and and here it is uh so you uh, you open the book uh
1: with uh, your experience retracing one of uh, retaking one of his photographs yeah. um it's interesting you I mean you parked off the uh, off i80 probably illegally <laughs> probably <Yeah>. illegally <laughs> you scramble up the mountain yeah and at a certain point you realize oh he was much further up the mountain when he took his photograph
2: yeah that he was uh, he had photographed what he had called i believe tunnel number 3 was uh, actually tunnel number no what he had called tunnel number 2 was actually tunnel number 3 and that, yeah, he was up very much higher on a different part of the mountain. Yeah. And so I thought, wow, this is a guy who has a lot of dedication in terms of how would he get all this – you know, he had this heavy equipment, you know. And how would he get it up the mountain, yeah. you know, to take this photo? But he certainly had a lot of commitment to getting the right photo. So
1: tell me about the equipment and, yeah. and, and the kind of photographs that he was taking at the time.
2: Yeah, so – um one of the big, you know, in the history of photography, there's various innovations, right? And things that change. And you and I have lived through uh, the change from uh, film to digital. But at that point, there was uh, a new sort of the new photographic process. It's called collodion wet plate negatives. And, um, and at the time, it was a huge advantage over older techniques, tintypes and daguerreotypes and um but you had to essentially you created a negative on the spot you took the photo and then you processed it and then um all within about an hour it's so that's wet plate collodion negative and so you had a, a a dark room with you at the time which we think of as boy that's a lot of work he had a, he had a little wagon and on the back of it, he had um, his his room was set up in this wagon. And so he did everything in the dark. So he had to memorize where it was. But what, what that allowed people to do is much better for outdoor photography. Because before that, it was mostly studio photography. And so he could do outdoor photography. But the main thing is that once he created that negative, now he could make as many prints as he wanted, right? He could make thousands or theoretically unlimited. And that gave him, you know, Once you have, you know, you have a market, people want to see images of the West and now you have a technology in which you can reproduce it and sell it, you know, and make money Mm. (laughs) from that. And so, again, that seems very, you know, at at the time, um, uh, another photographer named William Henry Jackson talked about taking, I think, 10 photos in one day is a good day. That's with bright sunshine, with good water, good chemicals, and so it's very different from today. You know, you just mm-hmm. whip out your camera and your phone and take a photo. Back then, you had to really think about it,
1: right? Mm. Uh, so when you say the dark, he had to do this in the dark. Did he have to wait till till nighttime? To oh no, so, so, so he had or was yeah, it dark in his wagon?
2: Yeah, I mean, if you think of, he sort of had a shelf in the back of his wagon, and then he had this big dark drape. That he put over it, and so he would he would get in there and he put you know this drape around him, almost like a blanket around him, and then he had this specialized sort of cabinet, I guess you'd call it, with all his chemicals and his bottles and everything that he needed in there. And so he had just had so much experience that you memorize where everything is and you Mm -hmm. do it all in the dark. Interesting, yeah, but uh, like
1: you say, it was. uh, quite the process so you know yeah. heavy tripod heavy equipment he's lugging it all over the place has to have his wagon nearby yeah. to, to, exactly. to, uh, to, to develop photographs and, and water you got to have water yeah you had to well.
2: really clean distilled water was yeah. really important in the process and he writes about he went up to the High Uintas area in uh, I believe August of 1869 and he loved that kind of high mountain water because it was so clean mm. right yeah. he thought that was great uh, so this was in the the golden age of yeah uh, f- photography
1: of the West, right? Uh, and part of that is there's a great appetite, at yeah. least for these images.
2: Well, yeah, and and what I you know, and part of it's a, a little bit of maybe a generational thing that you know you and I grew up. With with these sort of I did I'm guessing you did with these westerns like Bonanza and mm-hmm. Gunsmoke and Wild Wild West and and uh, I I grew up watching those and that you know there's always kind of been this visual component of the West whether that's painting whether that's photography whether that's westerns or illustrations in magazines and so this is part of a long tradition of this kind of uh, to see the West as you know the idea is to see its history and to understand its history is to see visuals of the West and so. Um, as you know, the railroad's being built and after the civil war and, and in the civil war, people, after the civil war, people started to really look at the West and with this idea, you know, we can settle this area. And so, um, they are, um, taking advantage of that interest in the West. And, um, and then now they have this new technology, which you talked about the collodion wet plate negatives. They're taking advantage of interest and now they're selling, right? They have a market and they can sell these things. And, and make money, right?
1: So what was uh, there? There was a stereotype of the West. There's images in the minds of people in the West that's been cultivated um, that the railroads were trying to dispel, right? Trying to counteract.
2: Yeah. And um, in some of my subsequent research that I've done, uh, it's been sort of interesting. I looked at popular perceptions of the West and in different uh, magazines and uh, by authors, you know, if you've ever read Roughing It by Mark Twain, which which is, is to me is the most interesting Western travelogue written, the most entertaining is that uh, he calls it the land of the coyote and the raven, uh, but another word for utter desolation. (laughs) And so, um, and even Dickens wrote about the West. He wrote a short story about the West in Harper's Weekly, and um, in which uh, there's an e- a Western Englishman who's living in San Francisco. It's a complicated story, right? Dickens is very complicated. But, but essentially, he has to travel um, east from San Francisco to get to New York City before this other man does. And he's terrified at the idea of going into the West. One of the things that was always sort of a general shorthand for the West, uh, you know, it was filled with wild beasts and savages, end quote, you know. And so, yeah, there was really a lot of negative ideas negative stereotypes. And sometimes they weren't stereotypes. I mean it was a very dry climate. And um the railroads were very much interested in dispelling that, right? Because of course they're they're um they want commerce, they want industry, they want people to settle in the West. They're big landholders. And so um Russell and And other Western photographers mostly are are trying to promote a much more sort of uh friendly vision of the West that this is a, a west filled with people, it has a railroad, and um, this is not this forbidding you know god forsaken land right that we are in right now you know utah uh,
1: so uh, tell us about some of those photographs that, that did this as well one one that stood out to me that you talk about is um uh, irrigated fields yeah the, the, the mormon settlers with a little irrigation i guess the subtext is you too can come out and farm
2: yeah and um yeah the the idea you know the great american desert and this idea of, you know a very uh, sort of inhospitable place and so so russell is taking um photographs of of you know things that may seem kind of mundane but irrigated fields in utah but at the time, you know that was sort of a big deal. That you know, oh, you can irrigate, you know, and you can raise crops, and so I, I, in and in fact, one of the things Russell did is he wrote a series of letters back to his hometown newspaper, the Noonday News, and which is a little town in, in where he grew up in in upstate New York, and so he talks about you know um, the 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 Mormon farmers and how well they've done. And, irrigation. and it's funny, he doesn't give the, any credit to them as, you know, cooperative ventures and working together. It's more like, well, this is easy to do. Anybody could do this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Uh, simplifying. Yes. Right. Yeah. Uh, you talk
1: in the book about how, uh, you know, just a simple photographs of Salt Lake City would be reassuring, would, would counteract to this yeah. idea of the, the Mormons are, a, a, you know, kind of a weird, dangerous yeah. cold out here. But their city— is quite modern.
2: Yeah, yeah, it is quite modern at the time. And, and so, I mean, if you think about it at that point, so they're starting from Omaha and Nebraska, really between a little bit into Nebraska and all the way to Sacramento or, to you know, the Reno area, there's really n- very, very few settlements, you know, in terms of Anglo settlements. There's a few forts. And so this idea of having this big city in the middle of this um, was very reassuring. To people. And um, and so with sort of modern amenities, again, that, hey, look, the Mormons did this, a lot of people could do this. And so, again, sort of encouraging that idea of, of the West isn't this sort of vast and inhospitable place, that this is a place that people come out and they, they raise crops and they grow cities and, and you can do it too, you know? Yeah. Uh, let's
1: take a break when we come back uh, more with uh, Daniel Davis. Uh, Daniel Davis's book is Across the Continent, the Uni-Pacific Photographs of Andrew Russell. Um, as we go along, I want to talk about, um, uh, again, how these uh, photographs were viewed, what the effects were, what the purposes uh, were. And you talk about, uh, Daniel Davis, about how uh, about how people view these images. Yeah. And so you, you try to get in the heads of the people back east who are viewing these images at the, at the time. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about you give us some examples in one of the chapters of some famous photographs from our time and yeah. how we view view those. So we'll get into talking about those. Um, and Andrew Russell himself. Uh, we'll have more following this break.
0: Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance, a nonprofit organization dedicated to protecting Utah's Red Rock wilderness lands. Details on SUWA and Protecting Wild Utah are at suwa.org. Utah Public Radio hopes you will join us in thanking our sponsors, the many businesses we rely on for their continued support of our mission to provide thoughtful and informative programming, especially in uncertain times. Please stay informed, but also know that whenever you want to find the perfect oasis, UPR2, our online classical music station, is available, and that's a wonderful thing, especially in uncertain times at upr.org
3: and on our app. Utah Public Radio always puts you first, even during a public health crisis. The highest priority is to deliver accurate information to you and to this community. It's listener support that makes this critical work possible. Give today at upr.org. Thank you.
0: Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in January.
1: You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Uh, the book is Across the Continent, the Union Pacific Photographs of Andrew J. Russell. The author is Daniel Davis. He's a photograph curator and associate librarian at Utah State University's Special Collections and Archives. And he's co-author of uh, Race to Promontory, published by the Union Pacific Railroad. Uh, We're talking about the book and the photographs and interesting uh, history of the West on the program today. By the way, we're speaking of the railroad. I want to remind you that there's a wonderful series. You can find this on our website, upr.org, Ride the Rails, which we uh, broadcast uh, uh, on May 10th of Mm -hmm. last year. Uh, for obvious reasons, um, so Mary Harris and Kirsten Swanson put this together. Uh, so, just to remind you about that. You can find that at UPR org. Uh, so, the, the the your book "Race to Promontory." Yeah, tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. uh, Glenn Williamson and Ken Burns. Is this the Ken Burns? Yeah,
2: and and his name is first and in bigger font. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, yeah. Uh, the, than mine. But the the Union Pacific, um, obviously, the Sesquicentennial last year was a you know is sort of a big deal for them. And, and so they, um, wanted, uh, different authors to talk about different aspects of the railroad and photographs of the railroad and what those meant. And so I was approached by Patricia Labounty at uh, the New Pacific Museum and, um, uh, you know, to write a little piece about Russell. And, and so absolutely I did. And, and it's sort of a commemorative book, um you can't, as far as I know, I looked it up on Amazon, and, and you can't uh, buy it on Amazon. It's just an internal publication. And so if you wanted a copy, you actually have to contact the Union Pacific Museum to buy a copy, and perhaps they're sold out. I think they made like 3,000 copies of that.
1: Okay. So that, uh, maybe somebody has a copy out there. <laughs> Interesting. And and associate, we, we're able to drop uh, Ken Bird's name there. That's Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's that, that's good. always fun. Yeah, yeah yeah
2: people ask if yeah. i if i talked to him when we did this and i said unfortunately not i didn't i was yeah. one of the authors on this book
1: well, your name's associated with him at least on yeah the, yeah on the cover of peripherally yeah. yeah um i yeah. want to ask you about this you chose a quote to beginning of chapter one this is martha Sandweiss photographs are primary source documents that can be encountered both in history and through history
2: yeah so um Martha Sandwise is sort of my academic hero um i've I've read everything she's she's written, and uh, a lot of her kind of theory uh, I've taken her theory and and implemented in the book, perhaps uh, not really well I, I'm not sure uh, but you know I, I think there's this i you know there's two things with photographs and and one of them is the way that you as a viewer react to the photograph but then there's also how did the people at that time you know and and what was the importance of that photo in history and so obviously the um the champagne photograph uh the famous photograph uh, was very important that became a symbol in the minds of somebody in 1869 for the unification of the west and you think about it so we go through this horrible civil war and um, they almost tears apart the nation people are looking how do we unite the country And so um, that photograph becomes a symbol not only for Western expansion, but also for unifying the West with the East, right? And and that the West—or the United States is not necessarily a country divided North and South, but a country united East and West. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of other examples of that that I use in the book as well, is that how— um, how do we view a photograph in ours, in, in our visual universe that we have, in the associations we have, versus what did somebody in 1869, what did the, the famous photo of Iwo Jima, mm-hmm. you know, uh, of uh, the flag raising at Iwo Jima, you know, for people that is that is victory in World War II, and so there's a lot of other examples of that as well. You know, one of the things I want to do is to get people to think about kind of their own visual universe mm. and what do what do photographs mean to you, what a visual image. Is mean to you how do they shape your understanding of the world right
1: we'll, p- we'll put that on pause we do have a caller so i'll alert you to put on your headphones uh, denny davis and uh, uh denny Davies in senior city has called us uh to- welcome to the program
4: good morning tom
1: good morning how are you doing
4: <laughs> hey um we're not getting any of the snow that you people up <laughs> there are but we're enjoying the bright sunshine and um, beautiful southern Utah right now.
1: Well, yeah, bright. I could use some bright sunshine. I wish <laughs> I was there. Yeah,
4: <laughs> <laughs> I'll try and share some with you. Okay,
1: sounds good. Th- did you have a, a question or comment?
4: Uh, my comment has to do with the nomenclature attributed to the, the exact spot where the Transcontinental Railroad was completed. And if I heard your guest correctly, I think he referred to it as promontory point. Oh. And promontory point is actually a physical location south of the summit by about oh, ten, twelve miles. And it's the point where the Union Pacific uh tracks now cross the north arm of the Great Salt Lake on a on a causeway. Mm. And so this, this concept of um, promontory uh, summit, promontory station, promontory uh, mountains, promontory uh, point, um, they're not all the same. Yeah. And I just call attention to that because that's probably one of the most misunderstood or misconstrued locations of this whole story of the transcontinental railroad.
1: Uh, and then I believe you were you were you superintendent out at Golden Spike? I was. I was yeah. there
4: for four and a half years. Yeah. Loved it.
1: Yeah. Uh so you 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 know you know a lot of this history. Correct. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well well thanks for that uh, clarification. Uh anything you want to say about the, about this um you know, we had the the big anniversary last year. Um
4: it it was uh, an event that I wished I had been able to make, but Yeah. Oh. As you know, that wasn't possible at the time.
1: Right, right, exactly. Well, thank you. Thank you for that clarification, and I uh, and appreciate that. And I look forward
4: that. to the book, so thank you very much, Mr. Davis.
2: Oh, okay, thank you. I, I can't get away with anything, can yeah. I, Tom? you got some sharp
4: <laughs> listeners out there. That's right.
2: Uh, you know, it's funny how that, he's absolutely right, it's Promontory Summit, and that how Promontory Point just kind of becomes, you hear that, and then in the moment, you, you misspoke, and it's a good thing I'm not a politician, because I think I would probably misspeak a lot. But you're absolutely right. It was Promontory uh, Promontory Summit, yeah. where the two railroads met.
1: Oh, thanks, Denny. Uh, glad you have the sunshine there.
4: Listeners among yeah. uh, Utah Public Radio, you have to know that we're going to keep you on, <laughs> on the spot. That's certainly true.
1: Okay. Uh, one of the joys of public radio. <laughs> thanks, Denny. Appreciate absolutely. that. Absolutely. Okay. Goodbye. Okay. Bye now. Um, that's uh, Denny Davis, who is... Uh, I happen to know is uh, had a long time career in the Park Service. Oh yeah, okay. He was superintendent at Golden Spike for a while.
2: Yeah, could, and could if I could just interject a little bit is that I have a, a ton of respect for the people out at the Golden Spike National Monument. We did an exhibit, uh, um, "A World Transformed," that was in the Utah State Capitol and um, then here in the library and then at Southern Utah Museum of Art, and they were so easy to work with and so accommodating and you know they really are are trying to do their best out there and and they just i I just can't say enough of good things about the employees out at the national park service mm-hmm. they were really really easy to work with and and uh I really owe them a, a debt of gratitude for the the work they do
1: i want to have you uh pick up your line of thought about how people uh, view photographs. What it, yeah. what the what the, photo, the photographs mean? So you were yeah. talking about, of course, the iconic champagne, yeah, uh, photo. We talked about uh, you know Iwo Jima. In the book, you have the the famous migrant mother, yeah, yeah, uh, photograph, a famous photograph of the the napalm girl, yeah, from Vietnam, yeah. Uh, I yeah. if you talk a little bit more about how how we receive these images, yeah. what what they come to mean, uh, you, you know. Some of these uh, break through and and become icons culturally. Yeah,
2: exactly. These become symbols for something larger. And, um, you know, the uh, Migrant Mother by Dorothea Lange, for a lot of people that sort of symbolizes the Depression. You know, in their mind this is the Depression, raising the flag at Iwo Jima, that is victory. And um, Napalm Girl, um, that is kind of the horrors of war, and, and it was used in a lot of anti-Vietnam protests and things like that. And so you know, I th- we live in a little bit of a different time, in that that we have so many images coming at us and a lot of moving pictures. But you know, if you if you recall back um, the photo of the the small boy refugee who died yes, was in the right. you know that those a photo you know makes an emotional connection. With us, and so, you know, it's something to hear a story, and um, and I, I'm saying this on radio as I realize as I say this, but but there's something about seeing that photo and making that emotional connection and between that, and it makes it so much more real to that. And so, you know, different images over time have meant different things. I think you know the symbol of the East and West coming together um, at Promontory Summit. There, I got it right. And um, that photo, you know, is one of the, the, there's issues with that photo. That That photo is not a complete record of, of everything that went into the Transcontinental Railroad, and there's no Chinese workers in that. It's hard to say. I think some of the workers were probably, some of the Irish workers were probably there, but that's been pointed out. You know, there's no Chinese workers there. And again, that's as a symbol. Every symbol has uh, strengths and weaknesses, and, and obviously it amplifies certain things, but then others, it doesn't tell the complete story. And I think one of the things is when you look at the entirety of Russell's work, right, Uh, over 1,200 photographs taken, that starts to give you a bigger, you know, a a better picture of the entire railroad and tells a more complete story of the Transcontinental Railroad. Right. Um,
1: And various photographers had uh, different interests. You you were telling me before we went on the air, I think, that uh, Russell photographed the people. That's what he was interested in. Yeah. Um, The photographer for Central was interested in technology. Yeah, and... Oh, sorry, Tom. Go ahead. Uh, uh, so that that was. Uh, so I wonder if you t- uh, talk a little bit about that.
2: Yeah, and so um, one of the things that I've I've done a lot of research into the background of Russell, and I was always sort of looking for: Did he have instructions? What did they tell him to photograph? And I found no nothing. You know, I mean, you think about it. This is a huge endeavor: twelve thousand employees, ten thousand employees, over fifteen hundred miles. You know it was a very complicated, and so he's one person in this in this huge machine that's doing this, and so I never found any instructions i It's interesting though he talked to um Thomas J. Durant, who's the vice president, who hired him probably um and so and so I was sort of trying to figure out what was he uh photographing. Um. What was his motivations and and I, I so I essentially had to say okay, look at his photographs. What are the photographs that he took of? And we have to kind of assume that he was photographing what they wanted him to do. But his emphasis was so different. Uh, Alfred Hart, um, who was the photographer for the Central Pacific, and he mostly looked at the the railroad as this technology. And they talked a lot about that at the time the the twin sort of technology. Uh, uh, miracles of the time the railroad and photography and so there was this connection in in the minds of the two but so so Alfred Hart looks at the technology the technology of the Central Pacific as it sort of defeats you know that was used a lot the Sierra Nevada mountains and so um, he doesn't really focus on people there are very few photographs of groups of people but time and time again Russell photographed people and people working, people in front of railroads, people, uh, excursion groups who would come out to the West. And that idea really fascinated me. Why did he, you know, why did he do that? Uh, uh So why did he do that? Let me, let me <laughs> Thank ask you, Tom. I set you up there <laughs> uh, for that. Okay. Well, and my theory is that um, Russell was, I think there's two things. One is that every sort of reference I've come across him and some were pretty cryptic, is that he was a very likable guy. And, and in fact, I think uh, in, in William Henry Jackson's journal, they spent a toge- day together talking about photography and chemicals. I think he says, I found him a likable, affable fellow. And there's a diary um, that, I, that I looked at from a friend of his, um, uh, C.S. Smith, um, on the, the railroad and, and they, they went, they did a lot of things together. You just get the sense this is a likable guy and, um, he just liked people. So I think there's that aspect. I think there's the aspect of, you know, the West instead of this, as, as Twain called it, the land of the coyote and the raven, but of a land of people, you know, that the West is, is a place where people go sort of almost this human landscape. You come out West and, and you see that. Um, and then I think also there's a kind of a subtle thing, you know, that in 1869, when you looked at a photo, um, you know, most people didn't think in terms of the workers on a project. And so that was sort of not, you know, for a lot of people that wasn't really, who built this wasn't really all that important, you know? And so it was the product that they built. And so to show the people who did it was very different at that time and especially cause they were, they were Irish. And, um, and so I think he is also telling us, you know, these are the people who built this thing and that this thing is more than just the technology, more than just the finances, more than just the politics that went into it. Um, it, it's about, you know, the people who built this thing. Mm-hmm. And that's, again, that's a theory cause I, I don't know if that's the way he thought, but, but that's what I've speculated. Mm.
1: Uh, so, he previously as many of these photographers had i think they they'd photographed the civil war
2: yeah and um the the civil war was one of those things that people really wanted to see images of early on there was so much interest right in this and who were the generals on both sides and what were the battles like and so a lot of photographers took advantage of that that interest in the war. But what's interesting about Russell is he was the only he one he learned photography in the Civil War, right? He did wasn't a photographer before that. Um, but he was the only commissioned officer whose duty was photography. Mm-hmm. And so he photographed with the Union, uh, the Railroad Construction Corps. And so he. that's kind of his laboratory. That's where he figured this out, this new medium. He had the same darkroom wagon. He had the same uh, cameras that he had in the Civil War as he did out, out west. So it's really sort of he's learning his craft. and then um, And then he takes that and he uses it. And um, there were others as as well um, who did that, Timothy O'Sullivan and William Gardner, who who did the same thing. They were photographing in the Civil War, and then they came out west mm-hmm. and then photographed out west. Right?
1: Mm-hmm. If you just joined us, uh, we're talking with uh, Daniel Davis. He is ph- photograph curator and associate librarian. Of Utah State University Special Collections and Archives, he's author of the book Across the Continent: The Union Pacific Photographs of Andrew J. Russell. You're welcome to join the conversation. Denny Davies uh, called eight hundred eight two six one four nine five. You can do the same eight hundred eight two six one four nine five, or you can email us to upraccess at gmail dot com. at gmail dot com. So you you said uh, people were intensely interested in photographs of the Civil War early on. Did that yeah. change?
2: Yeah. As um, as the civil war dragged on um, and as you know, it's sort of one. I think it became a little bit of old news, but I think as sort of the horror of what was happening and the death and the destruction um, became more and more evident, uh, photography just sort of. You know, people didn't necessarily want to see images of this. And when I say this, I mean, you think about the technology at the time. So Russell isn't actually shooting battle photographs, right? He's shooting, you know, right before the battle and right after the battle and showing a lot of the dead bodies. And so as um, it's interesting, at the end of the war, um, uh, there were some uh, Gardner and Timothy O'Sullivan did these beautiful Well, beautiful and terrifying books of the Civil War and um, with these large format images and and very, you know, expensive. But they didn't really find a market because by then people are like, you know what, we're done with this. We just want to move on and be done with this. And that's partly why the West sort of becomes then the expansion into the West and the building of the railroad become kind of the new big story. Right. Mm -hmm. And and so people quickly kind of moved on from that.
1: So the, the, these would have been many of the same photographers. They're the ones who had the skills. They would have yeah. photographed the Civil War. Now they're out in the West. Um, do you think the the war had an effect on
2: how they were photographing the West? Well, I think, it, I mean, in terms of that they – learned how to do outdoor photography even that concept you know you got to remember that this all sort of started the idea of 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 what is photography The, the even the concept of taking photographs outdoors that photographs used to be just studio shot you went to a studio you put on your best clothes and you had a portrait taken and then you left and then you had a little tintype you know those little cases um so the idea of being outdoors and taking photographs of that i think also the idea of newsworthy events we want to see images of this. There was a lot of talk. It's interesting. A lot of talk of of photographs are uh, is the best medium better than art. You know, Than an artist, they're not completely accurate, but the photograph is is completely accurate. And, and so people really wanted to see, you know, the photographs of the West, even no matter how seemingly mundane. And so because that was the most accurate medium that mm-hmm. they could view the West through.
1: That's uh, true. There's a perception that uh, you know, photographs are more realistic, right? Yeah. In a certain sense, they are. Yeah. But there's
2: there's there's a lot of artistic <laughs> judgment that goes yeah. into
1: a, a photograph,
2: right? Yeah. And that's one of the the one of the beauties in my mind of uh, and interesting things about photographs as primary sources is that is that the, yes they capture this little you know, time and moment in history, but is that the full story, you know? And I talk about this in the book, right? The champagne photograph. That's just a tiny, you know, just a little point in time. And which has come to symbolize the whole thing, but you know, you know, a photograph is a small part, easily manipulated, you know, and so they take this photo, this little part, and then, and then it's like, well, what do we see in that? What did people see in that? What did they think that was? And so, I, I think that's really one of the interesting things about photographs. And you always have to remember, you know, what I what I say is, is a photograph is a constructed vision. You know, it's a version of reality that you're getting. It's not the reality itself, right? And so um, you always have to keep that in mind with photographs. And I think especially with historic photographs where people wouldn't, you know, there's very few images and they had to put in so much time and effort and thought into the photos they were mm. taking. So
1: for the photographs that become symbols, or yeah. icons. Russell's famous champagne yeah, yeah. photograph became an, an icon. You talked about Iwo Jima and the, and yeah. the, the others. Um, it does become shorthand for us, right? It became powerful. Yeah. It can unify us in a, in a unified vision, but maybe we should look closer is what you're saying because there's, there's yeah. not everything there.
2: Well, yeah, it's it's just part of the story, and 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 I think you have to remember that. It's part of the story that can be easily manipulated, and so I think the more we kind of think about the images in our lives and the images we see on TV and on the internet, I guess people don't watch TV anymore. There's Mm -hmm. the things you mostly see on the internet or on YouTube, you know, um, how are those images being manipulated? Are they being manipulated to get you to buy yogurt, you know, or are they manipulated to get you to sympathize with somebody, you know? And it's not necessarily bad, it's just the way it is, you know, that's just sort of the nature of visual. And so, I, you know, yeah, I, I urge people through the book and just, you know, students at USU is to take a closer look and to take a more critical eye hmm. to the images. What's the story behind the image?
1: And then not only that, but in today's day and age, um, you know, photographs, images can be altered yeah. in, in such a slick way that... That that maybe what you are seeing is <laughs> is
2: absolutely false. I am really glad I am not dealing in the, in the nineteenth you know century. That was much much harder to do and much easier to detect. And so I am I am glad my specialty isn't deep fakes and things like that. That's just a whole other world. Yeah, uh,
1: but, but as you know, studying photographs, I don't know what you uh, you know. I don't know if you have a different view about deep fakes. I mean, we're all we're worried about it, right? I don't know what we can do about it. I, yeah, I guess you have to rely on on yeah, that's journalists and such you know to, yeah to you, those, right? yeah.
2: I mean, I think that one speaks to this we're going to love topic, but to the journalists, like you know, the people in NPR and UPR, you know, to to do good work and to say, okay, no, this is not. Real, And I think it's incumbent upon everybody else to, you know, to view a lot of the images and, and the, the videos they see with a skeptical eye, you know, and not rush to judgment, you know.
1: Yeah. Let's take another break. We'll come back with our final segment. Uh, the book is Across the Continent, Union Pacific Photographs of Andrew J. Russell. Uh, the author is Daniel Davis. He's a photograph curator and associate librarian at Utah State University's uh, Special Collections and Archives. We'll have more following this.
3: Over the past several weeks, UPR and NPR have had to make significant changes to our production workflow while still serving listeners in new ways. You've heard this on the air, especially as our different programs and daily news and talk programs responded quickly to cover the coronavirus crisis. For example, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me is not planning any changes in the scheduling of new and repeated shows while under quarantine, but they have stopped recording in front of a live audience. So as a result, the show will sound different. No audience means no applause and laughs. So we're encouraging you to provide your own laughter or groans at home. And during this time, Wait, Wait promises to maintain its standard level of quality, a good solid C+. We're proud to be partnering with you to keep us all informed enriched, and entertained. And we encourage you to support Utah Public Radio by going to our website and contributing online at upr.org.
0: Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in January.
1: Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Uh, we've reached our last segment with uh, Daniel Davis, uh, who's the author of Across the Continent, the Union Pacific Photographs of Andrew J. Russell. You're welcome to join the conversation here. You can uh, email us to upraxcess at gmail.com, access at uh, gmail, uh, dot com. Uh, so uh, tell me a little bit more about the man, Andrew J. Russell. is yeah. born and raised in upstate New York.
2: Yeah, he um, he was raised in a small town called Nunday, and N-U-N-D-A, and um, he showed artistic promise early on, and back then— Sort of artists would work, um, they would do, you know, signs, say, or paint frescoes or do some sketches and some portraits of people. And he did that pretty early on. And um, he got into uh, something called uh, moving panorama um, shows. And so it's kind of hard to describe, but what it was is if you think of like a spool and a, and a long length of canvas and it would be unspooled from one spool to the next and they'd have curtains behind it. So it was almost like a moving montage of images. And that was actually extremely popular in the 1850s. That was probably the primary way people saw images and they're very popular and lectures would go all over the country. And, you, and it was mostly a trip. You know, you're taking a trip to Europe through, you know, the European cathedrals or up the Mississippi River. But when in the West, there was a lot traveling West. And so um, he would paint those. And um, he actually did one of the Civil War and he painted that. And, and then you hire a narrator and you go through these little towns and each person pays like a 10, 15 cents. And, but then he decided to join the Civil War himself as a captain. And, um, so at that point it's interesting because he, he doesn't do photography, right? And it's in the civil war, a guy named general Herman Haupt, um, uh, decides, Hey, this guy's an artist. I think he could be a photographer. And so he becomes a photographer and, um uh, with the conservation railroad Corps, and photographs, a lot of the construction projects that they're doing, and Haupt was this very innovative guy. He came up actually with you know the idea of a pontoon bridge. We have a series of br- uh, pontoons, that you you know that you can roll, essentially roll up. You know you don't have to build a permanent bridge. He did a lot of really innovative things, and, and Russell photographed his experiments. But in, in the Civil War, you know it was important. Um, the the construction of railroads and the destruction of railroads and then the rebuilding of railroads is very important. Each side was trying to destroy the other's railroads and then each side was trying to rebuild them as quickly as possible because railroads were very important in terms of moving troops and in terms of moving supplies and things. And so he photographed a lot of the, how came up with these really innovative techniques in terms of putting the railroads back together after they have been destroyed. And so he essentially created illustrated manuals and then he got done with that and then uh, just photographed a lot of uh, different scenes, uh, as we talked about this earlier. Not not the battle scenes, but the before and after and armaments and fortifications and some of the generals and things like that. And at the end of the war, it's kind of interesting when you're doing this research, how people kind of disappear, right? And so I'm not... 100% sure what he was doing. I, I've come across references to that he had a, t- it's called a tintype gallery where he's taking tintype portraits of people um, called the Wide Awake Gallery. And then, but at some point, you know, a lot of the people who worked on the Union Pacific were old Union um, officers, right? And so probably there was a connection through that. And um, Thomas J. Durant um, approached, I'm guessing it was Thomas J. Durant, approached him about being the photographer for the Union Pacific. Mm hmm
1: uh it, it was very poignant to me to to learn
2: little glimpses of what happened to him after after yeah. this period yeah he kind of you know that's what's interesting is that he um he had a kind of his moment in the sun and um where he's giving lectures in the east to the um different photographic associations and he's kind of a rock star among photographers you know he went out west he took these well-known photographs of this you know the most well-known enterprise in America at that time. But then he, he goes and he, he works for Leslie's Illustrated. And we talked a little bit about that, how um, a lot of visual images were seen by people through these illustrated newspapers. And they came out once a week, Harper's Illustrated and Frank Leslie's. So he he was working on that. So essentially, so he's working on the number two publication in America. He's an artist and he would carve the woodcuts and things they would, and and he also took photographs for them. And then after that, he kind of just, I'm not sure. I think he he has a studio I, I I'm guessing in the 1880s um but he applies for a pension, he applies for some government jobs. Um, he's living with his daughter in St. Cloud, Minnesota in 1895. I'm, I'm guessing he had some sort of form of early onset dementia and he couldn't work anymore, but he dies in Brooklyn in, in 1902 and it's sort of forgotten, you know, I scoured his, his hometown newspaper in 1902. Surely they would have talked about this because when he was in civil war, and on the railroad, you know, and, and thank God for little gossipy hometown newspapers, right? Mm-hmm. And we don't think about it now, but back then they were so gossipy. Every little thing, you know, uh, Major Russell, Russell or Cap, Cap, they called him Major, he should have been captain, was, was in town, you know, and he's been out on the railroad, you know. And so these little gossipy hometown newspapers, and he just sort of disappears, and they kind of forget about him mm. and so once his photographs you know they were kind of the 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 big deal of the eighteen sixties and seventies once that area' passed, he's sort of forgotten about a little bit. yeah, it's a little sad uh so tell me about
1: uh, sleuthing and and piecing together his yeah. you become interested in this other than the famous the, the champagne yeah. photograph um you you have, I was interested to learn you you uh, found photographs in some of the usual places, but you found some on eBay?
2: Yeah. Um, yeah, so uh, I did. Uh, you know, a lot of his stereo views... Okay, so a stereo view is two images side by side. When you place them in a viewer, um, they appear three-dimensional. And those were actually his... That's what most people saw at the time. Those were his biggest sellers. And he sold those, you know, I don't have numbers, but... The, they, A lot of them lasted, you know, they must have sold thousands of them. And um, so, yeah, so I would look on eBay and I would look on um, other, you know, uh, sites that were selling stereo views to look for his images. Um, in terms of the research, the the two big, I, I had kind of two um, big things in, in that uh, there's, I found this genealogy site and it has all these little, upstate New York newspapers, just sort of scanned page after page. And there's almost no, you can't really search them, you know, keyword searching. And it's just, you almost have to look at it page by page in order to do this. And I finally kind of figured out a system. But again, that kind of those gossipy hometown newspapers, they mention everything. And so I was able to find some references for that. I was able to find the letters he wrote back to, um, to the noonday news, when he was out west in 1869, he was kind of like a correspondent. Almost, he would write these letters. This is what what I'm doing. This is what's going on on the west. They're not really about his photography. They're more about his travels, right? And then, um, so then uh, I I was able to access a diary, Charles Smith, who was a, a clerk on the Union Pacific Railroad, and I actually accessed a transcript of the diary. And he and Russell became business partners, and as well, they they were, um, I think they were friends, they were business partners, they bunked up together. And so Smith talks a lot about Russell, so he's able to trace a lot of where he was at certain points, but also to trace where he was based on the photograph itself, if there was something in the photograph um, that could help me narrow it down you know he had to have been here you know at this point of time or around this time to kind of cr- use all those sources to create recreate this narrative of what he did during those two years mm. on the railroad well,
1: what do you think it means i mean you've pieced this together what, what does it mean to you to to have pieced his as much as you could
2: well i mean it's a lot of fun yeah yeah <laughs> and beyond it being kind of this sleuth and kind of research. I I think most people enjoy research, Um, maybe even a little more than, well, definitely more than writing. That's kind of the fun part, I think, of a research project. Um, I think a, a large part of this, and a lot of this we did in the sesquicentennial, is kind of piecing together the story of these people in the photos. We don't know who they are. Who are the individuals who labored on the railroad and and built it together. And I appreciate some of the work that UPR did on that and other different uh, genealogy associations in terms of trying to tell that story of these are the people who worked on it. And there's surprisingly little about the people. And as a photo curator, that's part of my job, putting names to faces, you know, who are the people in the photographs. And and it's hard to do for a lot of that. But I do think... In terms of recreating the life of one person, one employee of the Union Pacific, you know, that was kind of where I got the satisfaction of this, is to retell his story. How he was one guy who came out here, you know, he didn't come out, you know, he wasn't a conqueror. He wasn't trying to build a financial empire. He was just trying to do his job. And make sense of what he saw. And then he went back. And that's a lot of the stories of the people who worked on it. They came out. They did their job. It was brutal labor. I mean, brutal labor. Lots of people died. And then they they kind of disappear. And so to try to, I think that's kind of the labor of the next, you know, few years is to try and put all that together a little bit. Mm. Uh, so you, you're working on that, and I guess others. Are, <laughs> I, I should uh, have, yeah, are. I should have clarified uh, other people, <laughs> other, other people's labor. Okay, I've kind yeah. of moved on to new yeah. projects, but yeah. but I do think that part of the sesquicentennial, a lot of that with the Chinese Railroad Workers Association, with the Hiberian Society, and with some of the stories that came out of that, I think you know there's some some rich areas where people can go in and start to start to do that. Mm. The the uh, uh, historian Ryan Derringer. Out of Eastern Oregon University, um, has been working on. this book called "The Filth of Progress," and he's been working on some of that. And mm-hmm. I think he he'll tell the story better than I would.
1: <laughs> yeah, interesting to see. And that has been uh, wonderful to to see the so those stories come out. Yeah, uh, exactly. During the centennial and after, I just have a couple of minutes left, and I want to end on uh, this interesting concept that you've thought a lot about. You write it in the book how people view images. Mm-hmm. And as, as a curator, you you th- you know you put together eg- exhibits, you put together collections, you yeah. maintain collections, you think a lot about this. I want to bring this uh, forward. Um, first of all, just personally, do you when when you when you go out just on vacation, you're snapping a <laughs> selfie? D- d- does that color how you
2: view view
1: that, or how you're going well, to compose I, that image?
2: Uh, I mean, in terms of in terms of that, this image is something that means something to me. Mm. You know, but it wouldn't necessarily mean something to you, Tom, or to, yeah. to a listener. It would be something that's very personal to me and to kind of realize that this is sort of part of my story. Yeah. What I put. Yeah, from that. But in terms of a broader view of not not so much. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just one person.
1: Um, I guess we'll continue. We'll always continue... Um you know as cultures to have these iconic images yeah uh come around and and it i guess just just, it just depends the that certain photographer just luck of the draw and then he or she happens to be there uh and what's important to people but but i assume these will always be be coming around these iconic images
2: yeah i mean that's that's kind of the great thing is that the story's never really finished right because there's a couple aspects of that is that yeah there's new there's always things happening new things that mean something there'll be new images of that um, but then there's our reinterpretation, right? What do we see? And that's a valid, you know I mean, it's, a, it's, it's, it's valid to say, okay, what did somebody in 1869 see? But it's also valid to say, what did I? What do I see? What is my reaction? to this photo. And this, that's going to be somebody that I'm going to have that different than somebody who, my daughter who's 12, um, and 50 years from now, somebody else will have a different interpretation of that. So sort of the never ending story, right? Sort of constant new reinterpretations of that. But it's that conversation, right? It's that, it's that looking at that and thinking about it critically and sort of taking that critical eye and, and, and sort of thinking about that. I think that's the key part of it.
1: Well, that's a good place to end the conversation. We're out of time anyway, so thank you. Across the continent, the Union Pacific photographs of Andrew J. Russell's the books out from University of Utah Press. And Daniel Davis is the author. He's the photograph curator and associate librarian of Utah State University Special Collections and Archives. Thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. And thanks for listening to Access Utah.
0: I'm Jay Allison, producer of The Moth Radio Hour, and I
2: hope you'll join us for our show here on Utah Public Radio. With true personal stories told live without notes to standing room crowds around the world, Moth shows are renowned for the range of human experience they reveal. That's The Moth Radio Hour, Saturday evening at 6, right here on Utah Public Radio.
3: Cash Arts and Utah Public Radio announcing The Moth is coming to Cash Valley this fall. Heard on UPR, Saturdays at 6 p.m., the popular storytelling program will perform a live Moth Main Stage show, October 22nd at the Ellen Eccles Theater in Logan. Moth storytellers stand alone under a spotlight with only a microphone and a room full of strangers. For fans of the program and anyone interested in excellent and true stories, you won't want to miss this show. Tickets and more information coming this summer at CashArts.org.
0: Is it newsworthy? That's the question we ask ourselves every day here at NPR. Hi, I'm Cara Tallow, executive producer for All Things Considered. When we're talking through stories each morning in our planning meeting, we're always thinking, how timely is this story? What kind of context can we provide to help you understand your world in a new way? And the only way we can make sure that we bring you the range of perspectives of folks affected by new policies or elections or even the resurgence of scrunchy culture is by cutting through the rhetoric to find the human story. That's what the staff of All Things Considered is tasked with doing every day. We're committed to finding the facts of the story and we're committed to bringing them to you. You can show your commitment to NPR and this station by becoming a member. Here's how. Make your donation to Utah Public Radio today at upr.org. And thank you for your support.
1: Utah Public Radio is a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan. Also heard at
3: upr.org.
0: It's 10 o'clock. TED Radio is next. Stay with us.